episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. And I am your new co-host, Amanda Justice, representing all the potential therapy clients out there. And today we welcome to the show, Hector Del Toro, Licensed professional counselor will be speaking about his practice in an area of interest, men and masculinity. Welcome to the show, Hector. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So what are your credentials and experience? I am currently licensed as a licensed professional counselor, license number 63079. I've been working as a professional counselor now for the last... 14 going on 15 years, uh, March of 2020, March of this year will be 15 years. Prior to that, I've been direct care staff at a uh, boys home, substitute teacher, um, changed tires and, and oil at, at Sears, um, any number of, of different jobs, you know, coming up. Um, and like I said, I've been, I've been doing working as a professional counselor now for going on 15 years. Uh, previously, previous to my private practice, I worked for a nonprofit agency in Austin called LifeWorks, where I did my, um, I was working there as a, in a different department. Um, and then got, I graduated, got my internship license and started working there first as a volunteer and then got hired on as a bilingual counselor. So I did seven, actually, yeah, I did seven years working there and then transitioned to private practice. That's awesome. I love LifeWorks and the services they offer. I think it's so necessary and I wish I could, I wish I had billions of dollars to give them. Um, mm. And so you are the other half of Del Toro Counseling Services of which we have previously had Hannah on the show. That is correct. Yeah, my wife works as a licensed clinical social worker 
Um, she's been in private practice a, maybe about a year longer than I have as she transitioned out of another job. And so both of our children grow up with two, two clinical parents. Um, you know, it's funny. Yeah. It makes me think of this uh, other guy I had on the show. His name is Michael Romero. Um, he works a lot with kids and he grew up with two therapist parents and turned out to be a therapist himself, which I think is hilarious. Um, (laughs) So remind us at Del Toro Counseling Services, do y'all accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I am currently accepting, or we both currently accept insurance. Hannah's licensure is a little bit different. um, So however that impacts her practice. I am credentialed with Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, Aetna, um, all of the major players and, and whatever subsidiaries they have and hold. And all of a sudden I get noticed, notified that, hey, you're now credentialed on this plan too. Um, which I is, which is <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit annoying. And, you know, I read it and it gets deleted. And then if somebody contacts me, hopefully I remember. Um, that, uh, that that was the case, but usually I ask people if they, where they found me, if they found me on psychology today, if it's a referral from someone or if they found me on their patient portal, client portal. Um, and that's usually what I use for very, you know, that's, that's about as deep as I get into the verification processes. If they found me on their client portal, then I'm on your plan and let's, let's, you know, let's move forward. And also, you mentioned you're bilingual, which I think is amazing, uh, you know, first off. And, and then second second to that, I think it's amazing to have a bilingual male counselor out there. Um, just out of curiosity, what percentage of clients do you see that you do sessions purely in Spanish? When I was at LifeWorks, that number was a, about 90 percent of my services were provided in Spanish. Since I've been in private practice, that has significantly decreased. Um, that's that's surprising what, to me. I feel like there's such a need, you know? Mm-hmm. Why that change has occurred, I couldn't tell you. Um, I don't really have a, a guess as to why. Um, well, part of it, you know, in LifeWorks, is another Right. Insurance is part of it. LifeWorks was the, was and or is the um, provider for a grant that in Texas is called STAR, Services to At-Risk Youth. And so any family, regardless of income, et cetera, if they met the criteria, could, could come in and receive counseling services for free for up to six months. Um, and that office where I worked was also in a I would imagine I could accurately say a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. Um, We shared office space with a Seton clinic that also. Oh, the one on South first. uh, Well, that's one that's on South first. I worked up off of Peyton Jen across from Lanier high school. Yeah. 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 And so that social worker would also refer a lot of people, you know, over, over to that side for actual, you know, services beyond whatever their capacity there was as a, as a social worker. Um, and so since I've been in private practice, I've had a few, but where it was 90%, it turned into like probably one to 2%. Um, 
of the people that I serve are seeking services in in Spanish. Uh, you know, I guess in some ways it's not surprising when you think about all the psychosocial and societal barriers for people who primarily speak Spanish, you know? Uh, is it different? Like, I, I would imagine that switching back and forth and doing therapy in Spanish and English would be kind of difficult sometimes. And I'm curious if, like, is it hard to find the right words in Spanish to describe things clinically sometimes? Or, like, hmm. what is that process like? When I first started, it was, it was really mentally taxing. Um, I grew up, the, the, I'll give you the, I grew up in a monolingual Spanish home. Um, and so I thought, hey, I'm bilingual. This is great. When I first got to Austin, I got a temp job to go score the Texas oral proficiency test. And I literally did not speak for the first two days that I was there. Because as we're going through the rubric on how to score this test, et cetera, there are, you know, it's a room full of, I don't know, 80 to 100 people. And we're listening to these tapes and then they're asking for feedback, like, what did you hear? And people were talking about, oh, well, that person who just spoke used the uh, present infinitive of the future participle and that was the wrong <laughs> grammar and... You know, I, I had not had a Spanish class since the eighth grade, and I probably didn't even pay attention to all the grammar rules then. So anyway, I made a really concerted effort um, to up my Spanish speaking skills and vocabulary, et cetera. When I first started working, I would have to hear what the person said, translate that into English, formulate my response in, in, in Spanish, and then spit it out. And so probably the first six to nine months, I had an exceedingly mentally taxing time where it wasn't just it wasn't just getting my therapy legs under me. It was also, you know, just the mental exhaustion of going through that process um, because my caseload was so high and I was seeing anywhere from people who had been attorneys doctors, you know, engineers in their home countries, all the way to people who had come here straight from some farm or ranch that they lived in. So I had, you know, uh, the, the continuum of clients that I was working with spanned a great deal. They were all very patient with me. I would, you know, inform them um, that my Spanish wasn't always going to be 100%. I had a clipboard that I would um, not just take notes on, but new vocabulary, uh, was getting put on there all of the time. And, you know, after doing that five days a week for seven years, by the time I left there, uh, that in addition to all of the other work that I had been doing, um, towards improving my Spanish speaking, you know, usually at some point, someone's going to ask me like, well, where are you from? Because you don't speak Spanish, like someone who lives from here, you know, you speak right. as a native speaker from, you know, some right. other country. And so I would go through and explain. Um, and that's always been good to hear, right? Good feedback that the, that my ability to speak isn't a detractor from the services that, that they're, that they're, that the clients were receiving. Um, yeah. yeah. 
So um, this is good to know. I mean, I think you're a fantastic referral source for any, any therapists and any clients out there who are looking for a bilingual therapist. Um, so we asked about insurance. What about sliding scale or reduced fee? Or do you offer either of those? Mm, I guess technically, no. Uh, if somebody does not have insurance and they're wanting to work with me, the fee is 75 bucks okay. for a 45 minute session. And I, I'm not as much of a Nazi with the, the time as I used to be. Um, but most of my sessions range in that 45 to 50 minutes. Um, and so, and that's it. Um, if, uh, I think $75 is still very, yeah, very reasonable. reasonable, very, very reasonable. Um, and so, yeah, it's 75 bucks if you don't have insurance. And that's also my, you know, my late, late, late cancel fee or my no call, no show fee is 75 bucks. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. What about, uh, do you have any weekend or evening appointments available? I do have uh, evening appointments. I do not have any weekend appointments. My schedule is Monday through Thursday, and and that's it. Um, I had Saturday appointments for a while, um, working out with uh, Hannah's schedule, and that went for maybe the better part of a year, and then we shut that down and just let you know let those sessions let that uh, time go by the wayside. So I have a, my schedule right now is uh, 25 clients a week. Okay. And are you currently seeing clients via telehealth, in-person, combo, both? Currently, or yeah, currently I'm only seeing clients telehealth and that is the plan moving forward. Um, I've not provided any in-person services since uh, March of 2020. Okay. Now, you mentioned several previous careers earlier. Would you consider being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? I would not consider it my first career. Uh, I was actually a professional musician for about two years. And that was, uh, I don't know about lifelong, but it was definitely a childhood dream. And, you know, had that continued, that would have been my only uh career. The only reason why I even got into a master's program to begin with was because I needed something to do from Monday through Thursday. Um, and we were usually gigging Thursday, any, you know, any combination of Thursday through Sunday left me with a lot of free time on my hands and, you know, idle hands and the devil's work and all that, all that good <laughs> stuff. So, um, I got into a master's program that was thesis optional because I, I appreciate that research is done and that people, you know, that that is happening, but that is not, um, that's not for me. So I got into a thesis optional master's program, uh, which was not counseling. Um, but it was convenient, you know, it was something to do. It was a quarter mile from my house. I could easily walk there and, and home. Um, and that's why I was in that program to begin with. So I guess more, direct answer to your question would be it's I see it more as a second career um I never really thought of what the 
career trajectory would look like or, you know, what population I would serve or like I never considered any of that stuff. Once I made the decision to switch over into the counseling program, it was just, oh, I'm getting this degree and then I'll figure out the next step when it shows up. I play well. I used to play drums. I have not touched a drum stick uh, in any kind of real way in, in a few years. That's cool. And also, what kind of music? Because I feel like that's a cliffhanger. Right. <laughs> uh, it was a, a variety of, of, of styles. The, what I was doing at the time, the, where I could say I call myself a pre- professional musician and getting paid, was whatever they call it now, Texas country, Americana, um, something Ooh. along those lines. And uh, that was more... I grew up with that kind of music, but it was also by, kind of by design in that, hey, if this band's good enough, then there's really not a, a, a town or a state anywhere in the United States that we wouldn't be able to go and play because probably most places have at least one honky tonk or two. <laughs> uh, so that's where that's where the idea to to pursue that came and it was going well. And then things happened and I. Uh, quit the band in August of 20, uh, not 20 of 2002. And then from there went on to have, you know, started another couple of bands and this, that, and the other, but nothing that was at that same, at that same level. You know what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to be a like group therapist to bands because I feel like so many good bands and so many bands in general, there's constant conflict, you know, and like resentments and people not saying what they mean or what they need. And like, it just evolves into bands breaking up frequently and just having tension. And I would love to be like the type of therapist who is contracted by a band to help them like keep the peace and like, you know, work on their relationships and communication. I don't know. I've always loved that. I've also always yeah. loved the idea of like on the road addiction support for sober musicians. That, so yeah, that totally. Cool. That would certainly yeah. be a part of it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am a provider for Sims here in Austin cool. uh, and have been pretty much since I started my private practice. Uh, I went, I don't even remember. I don't even remember what the little lunch thing was and the, the director of Sims was there at the time and kind of got on the, not the really short track, but made a good connection and got contracted with them and have continued to provide services to, to their clients um, since 2007. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm curious what ultimately pushed you to switch to the counseling master's program? was in the other master's program and was taking electives um, over there. I quit this other band. I quit this one band and that sent me into a pretty big tailspin of all sorts. And it was the Monday after ACL Fest. I guess that was 2004. It's like, if I can just get it together and get to my class this evening, which was a theories class, you know, intro theories class, um, I'll count today as successful. And so I made it to class that day 
the the theory that they were going over that day was on existential psychotherapy and pretty much it was like, okay, well, from what I gather from this, from this lecture, you know, tonight, um, when my life was working out was because I was directly applying this philosophy to, to my experience, you know, on the planet and didn't, didn't know that, that that was a part of the counseling world. Um, but since, since I, you know, since I found out that, that Monday night, then on the drive home from San Marcos to Buda, it's like, well, I'm abandoning this other program that I have no interest in other than the fact that, you know, I would have a master's degree. But again, that, that was serving another purpose at the time when I started that. Um, and yeah, on that little, whatever, 15, 20 minute drive, decided to change majors, um, you know, the program I was in previously was 36 hours long and I was pretty much halfway through that. And the counseling program at Texas state is where was, I don't know about now, um, 72 hours long. So, but none of that matters. It was like, Oh, this is, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. Applied, got accepted. And here I am 14 years later. That's awesome. That's awesome. It sounds like it was like a, a serious epiphany that you had in that moment. Very much so. And it was very much what was, what was needed at that time. Um, you know, there was a, because being in, because being in a band, being a musician was a childhood dream. There was a, even though I willingly left the band, there was still a significant loss of identity. Um, and, uh, which is why I not clarify, but it's why I say that I work as a licensed professional counselor instead of I am a licensed professional counselor because I'd put all my eggs into the uh, musician basket. And while it was me who walked away from it, um, that yeah, like I won't put my I won't put all my eggs in in one identity basket ever again. Right. So I work as an LPC. I have a role as a father. I have a role as a husband. I have a role as a neighbor, as another human being on the planet. And there are things that I do, but that's not necessarily who I am. Right. You know, it's interesting that existential psychotherapy was what did it for you, you know? And it's kind of interesting because like it plays into the whole idea and existential psychotherapy of like meaning and meaning making, right? And you chose... Uh, to move forward with a career that is very meaningful in a lot of ways. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. This, um, yeah, I agree. There, there is a lot of meaning to be made um, from the work that, that we do, right. That, that, that is done. Um, I'm not always, well, in the hustle and bustle, you know, sometimes that gets lost and like any other job, right. It's a job. Right. And then, when I step back far enough, there's, um, I have a filing cabinet with my EMDR paperwork, right? And I open the filing cabinet and I look at the EMDR paperwork and think about, you know, how much shit we've helped to clear out of somebody's, out of all these people's experience. And I go, yeah, right on, you know, something else that I tell my clients is that, you know, the, 
it's never evident where the work that we do is going to stop, right? Because that person goes and interact, right? The, all those ripple things ripple out. And so, yeah, it, I do consider it very meaningful to get to participate in someone's experience in this particular way and to be trusted with all of that. Totally. I feel honored every time. And I think as a therapist, as a therapist, it's important to keep sight of that and like maintain that feeling because I don't know, it's just important. I think it's important in not letting ourselves get to ourselves. <laughs> so you've told us some things about you. You've talked to us a little bit about, uh, you know, goals that you have, things that you've done in the past. Um, tell us a little more about yourself and like who Hector really is. Like what, what things do you enjoy? What are your interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, kids, pets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right on. Um, well, my wife and I have two children, an eight-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. I got started or, yeah, with kids pretty late in life. My daughter, I was 40 when my daughter was born. I'm 48 now. Um, so, you know, there's that. And maybe I'll come back to that at some point. Uh, we have a 12-year-old basset hound named Roscoe that I am his primary caretaker. Uh, and all things dog, dog related. Um, I came late to the coffee game, I, but I do enjoy drinking coffee probably a bit um, too much. Um, before, before the pandemic hit, you know, interests were a little bit, or at least opportunity to explore interests for, for myself, given Hannah's health circumstances were a little bit more varied. And so I still you know, got together and jammed. Um, with, with this other guy that I'd been in a band with, et cetera. Um, most of my friends also have kids and they're at different developmental stages than, than our kids. So we didn't really see them too much. Um, I have discovered that the longer I do this work, the more introverted I become. Totally. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't actually expecting that. Um, you know, I'd always not all. I mean, I'd had more of an extroverted bent, but that was, I think, because my emotional energy was not as previously taxed as it is now. But that's um, to a degree, that's a loss that I've had to continuously reconcile um, here, you know, uh, as I continue doing doing this work. I'm I've gotten more and more, okay, you know, more and more OK with it. So, um, that definitely has an impact, um, you know, interests, music is still an interest. I, uh, there's nothing current that I'm listening to. You know, I listen to a lot of stuff that I grew up with. Um, I think I listened to a brand new Pearl Jam album a couple of days ago while I was working out, which is, you know, working out as part of my self-care, um, routine. I'm a little bit. Um, yeah, not as quite as in shape as I would like to be, but you know, that's still exercise is a, is a part of every day, whether it's, uh, lifting weights, hitting the punching bag, walking, you know, taking the kids out, any of that stuff. Um, TV shows, I don't like watching, uh, 
regular TV because I hate commercials. So streaming everything is pretty much, you know, something uh, or that's pretty much all all we do. We're currently watching that uh, series on Netflix called Outlander, uh, which it's entertaining uh, and there are no commercials and I don't have to wait for the next season to to come out. You know, I was really bummed when they started doing Ted Lasso uh, that way instead of just, you know, or when you had to wait for Ted Lasso to, to one episode was this week. And then, you know, they kind of did it like a traditional yeah. TV show that bummed me out because um, I really liked that show. But that's, you know, I don't know if I directly answered your question. Um, yeah, things are things are pretty quiet. You know, things were pretty quiet even before the pandemic. We have two small children. Um, work is obviously a lot. So, you know, take the kids to the park, go to the farmer's market and run around on the weekend. Uh, and that's really about as much as I had energy for, you know, on top of maintaining the home and, you know, doing all of that other stuff. Um, right. Every once in a while, I'd make plans to, to see my friends. Uh, but that, that was a, a, a rarity to see them in person just because, you know, they've got lives of their own and we've got a lot going on as well. Yeah. By the way, if you're looking for a TV show, I highly recommend the show, the sinner. Um, mm. It's so good each. And there's like four seasons out. I think now um, I think there, depending on your provider, there might be commercials, but it is a really good show. If you're into like, kind of suspenseful, interesting, like psychological thriller type stuff. Hmm. Right on. I'll have to give that a shot. We'll, uh, we'll finish Outlander. Hopefully the marvelous Miss Maisel will be available by the time we, uh, we finish with that. So that was another show I really enjoyed. Um, so lots of outside of the, the, general noise of a house right also lots of lots of quiet um to just to just try and, and sit and be still for a little bit well i can't imagine the chaos of two therapist parents being displaced out of their office due to a pandemic and then kids having to essentially be homeschooled and like managing schedules and duties and like you know all that stuff that sounds ridiculous. I don't know that I would have energy for much else either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's, um, I started learning this even before the pandemic, right? When my daughter came around, obviously the, the energy shifted because we had a newborn in the house. And for about the first six months of, after she was born, I was still trying to function as a, you know, as we don't have kids, meaning, you know, the yard was mowed and raked and blown and the house was clean and laundry was done and everything was good. And there was still time to, to do everything. And, uh, I very, you know, six months in of sleep deprivation and a six month old hit the wall on that. And so I've, I, uh, started having to readjust expectations of myself right in those roles as a husband as a father um, as a person on the planet to 
to be able to keep up and maintain my, my sanity. Um, you know, so much so that I had to start setting alarms on my phone. Like you have 45 minutes to take care of that and that's it. Right. You can't, you can't go any further than that. Cause I wanted to, you know, well, I wanted to do it all and, and be good at it, but too many energy leaks and stuff going everywhere. And it just didn't, didn't work. So, um, and that has definitely continued to serve me now having two children and, you know, all of the things that you listed off earlier, as well as just the general stress of, right. And the existential threat that's there of we're in the midst of a pandemic and when is it going to end and what, you know, uh, all of that adjusting expectations and trying to find, trying to find some appreciation when I can and letting go when I can't and gnashing my teeth when I need to as well. So out of curiosity, as a client, can you describe your ideal client to me? Sure. Um, somebody, you know, in, in a nutshell, somebody who's truly ready to do some work. Um, someone who has an idea, not only an idea of what the goal is that they want to work in on, but who is going to um, come in and be willing to encounter their own vulnerability um, emotionally and otherwise. I find that sometimes when I go into a therapy session or even look for a therapist, sometimes there's just a, I'm struggling with an emotion, but I don't have a goal. And uh, I kind of look to the therapist to help me discover my goal. How do you, how do you interact with situations like that? That's very much the case. And, and so at, at that point, I would say the goal would be to begin helping the client to actually identify their range of emotions. And so, you know, a concrete way of the, the concrete way that I do that is zero to 10. Zero is the worst emotion that you have ever felt in your life. And 10 is the best. Um, and then getting people to check in with themselves various times a day and see what, what am I feeling right now? Okay. And so, you know, what I've noticed over the course of my work is that people tend to talk about their thoughts and they're, they think that they're talking about their feelings because they've, they've interjected, I feel, um, at the beginning of that, which um, is not accurate. And there are so many different things that can impact what you're thinking. And if your thinking is off, then chances are what you're feeling is off, right? Good old CBT, um, thoughts, feelings, and, and behaviors. So um, getting people to check in with something I, I stole from the substance abuse world, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, right? Wow. Physically, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Do I have one of those going on? Okay. Uh, if so, what's the need that I need to tend to? And then from that, you know, does it, what, what does it do to my feeling state? That makes sense. Yeah. I also, I don't know so about you, Hector. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people appraising 
their emotions also as good or bad, which is very like, you know, black and white, right? So like, for example, somebody, uh, somebody identifies like anger as a bad emotion and is fearful of, of allowing themselves to experience it. So like working on the way we think about emotions and also increasing the tolerance of sitting in difficult emo emotions, I think is also important. Right. I would agree. And there is that, uh, it's easier to, it's easier to kind of help someone or coach them through sitting with the uh, particular feeling in a session, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, that's something else that, that I do as well. And getting people to identify that somatically, like, okay, so what are you noticing in your body? Where, where, where is that right now? Um, and as the conversation ensues, then how does that shift? Right? right. What I've noticed for myself is that my body, my body will tell me what my brain is. That sounds kind of backwards, but my body will tell me what my, what my mind is not willing to acknowledge totally. because Sorry. my mind will fence with itself and go, you're not tired. You have no reason to be tired. You, you know, you have no reason to be angry, blah, 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 uh, on whatever it is. And it's like, no, my, my body's not, not lying to me. Something's going on here. I need to, I need to regroup. Okay. So I guess what you're saying is, uh, if you kind of come in without a goal, I guess the goal that you kind of said is to become comfortable with feeling the emotion that you're struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or the, the, the set of emotions or why that's a, a challenge, you know, um, we're, we have been, uh, I'll say it this way. We've been told that positive thinking should be able to overcome anything and everything. Right. Because we'll just think positive, just think, po don't focus on that. Just think positive. And that doesn't really, that doesn't really work, you know, yeah. um, for all of us, most of the time, right? Because yeah. there's, there's something getting in the way. And if logic and rationality was always going to win the day, then Noah and I's profession wouldn't even exist. True. Because as human beings, we would just go off and do whatever is logical and rational and we wouldn't need to talk about it. And our feelings wouldn't need to be acknowledged or anything else, you know? You would just suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on to the next thing. Yeah. But it don't work that way. Yeah. What modalities do you draw upon and what sorts of evidence do you rely on to support your treatment of choice? And how do you stay up to date about new information or approaches? Mm. Well, um, I didn't, I don't like to reinvent wheels and I would have never considered myself a solution oriented, um, counselor or working from that place until I went to LifeWorks, um, went to a training with a guy named Jack Nowicki, who I'm not sure if he still practices or not, but, uh, I think he was a professor at UT and was licensed as an LCSW. And it was a, it was a training on 
how to correctly do an action plan. And it was, it was a solid training. Um, and so I, I, I very quickly adopted, uh, the solution oriented framework, um, for the work. Well, one, that's what LifeWorks uses as their theoretical framework. Um, so I had to work from that perspective, but it also married very well with how I operate, how I operated and operate in the world. Um, and well, um, yeah. So that's, you also, that's, uh, you also mentioned EMDR too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, how do I say this accurately? I'm trained in level one EMDR. I'm not certified. Um, at the time I didn't follow the certification track, uh, mostly out of, uh, time and money commitment. Um, so to get that right, I always tell people I am trained in level one EMDR. I'm not certified. Uh, so yes, I do use EMDR, uh, when someone is either directly seeking that or it turns out that, uh, EMDR is something that would be beneficial to them. Um, EMDR is something that I offer people, but even if someone has, um, an issue or a set of issues that could be addressed with EMDR, you know, that's something that they have to decide. Uh, I don't run a, I don't run an EMDR practice as some other people do. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the other, so the solution oriented model is definitely at, at play. And, um, my last semester in school, I had to take, I was doing my internship, but in order to, maintain my financial aid status, I had to take one more class. And I was lucky enough to get into a class called grief and loss. And uh, in terms of, it's not necessarily a modality as more as a conceptualization, which I guess you could call it that. Um, But there's so much of that. There's so much grief and loss for all of us that we continue to carry around that we don't acknowledge. it's there all the time. Um, so that's something else very much that I incorporate into the work that I'm doing and talk about and um, interject and normalize for, for people, for the people that I work with. So jumping- I stay current was the other part of that conversation. Um, yeah. I don't read. Um, I don't read. Uh, I don't know if I've got some kind of reading thing or whatever else. I need to have it like absolutely quiet, et cetera, in order for me to even begin to approximate something known as reading and, and begin to enjoy it. Uh, I do listen to a lot of different um, things, you know, people who have written books and researchers and all of that kind of stuff. So I would say that, that podcasts um, are the way that I stay current with any number of, of topics, you know, and yeah. Um, well, thank you for answering that question. So to, to dive into the topic, let's start with the question because I think definitions are important. How would you define masculinity? Mm. 
Mm. It's a tough one. It is. It is because you can talk about physical traits. You can, you know, um, so it's not, well, it is a tough question. Um, What about like, like when I say masculinity, like other than like any sort of physical trait, what would like the practice of being masculine, what would be included in that sort of thing? And, and arguably, you know, I, I'm coming from the perspective here that inherently nothing is neither masculine or feminine. It is how we are socialized and how we attribute, how we give like meaning to things in our, our roles. But like for you and for the people that you work with, what does mas- masculinity typically look like? I think for it's hard to separate that entirely in that I grew up, you know, I'm 48 years old. I grew up in a time where all of that was still very much the the focus. And so, you know, my socialization was, was rooted very much in all of that. Um, well, especially within the Hispanic culture, you know, there's the, there's the whole yeah. machismo thing, for example. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with, with, I grew up in a family situation that was um, a little, uh, it was stereotypically, it was stereotypical, but also had you know, very non-stereotypical elements in that both of my parents were, again, because of their socialization and acculturation, or not acculturation, but their socialization, were very much rooted in gender roles, but because of circumstances, that was also blurred. Um, And so, you know, I grew up, my mom was uh, sick with cancer. And so whenever she was unable to Right. My dad stepped in and cooked and cleaned and, you know, changed diapers and, you know, did all of these things. And there, there was no clearly defined tasks or you know, in, in, in that way. And beyond that, or so, you know, growing up, seeing that it, it didn't matter um, who was washing the dishes or who was doing this, that or the other. Uh, you know, before I came around, you know, my parents, the, the land where our house was built, uh, my dad was off sheep shearing for the season and my mom and my brother cleared the land, you know, with axes and hose and whatever it is that they needed to, to use to clear the land. Like that's what, that's what they did. So none of that stuff was, was clear and evident um, other than how each of my parents felt about themselves, you know, and, and giving themselves that, that space. Um, now, or I say now, I think people are still, we're in this, in this transition time where that's still something that we can look back and it's not that far back that we can look and see all of that 
traditional stuff. And then there's all of the other stuff that we look the other way. And here's this other wave of ideas uh, that, that comes. And how is that going to be, if at all, right, processed by anyone in, in particular, right? And how does that affect them? Um, I don't, it's not, uh, I, I'm not sure that I'm getting to the heart of the answer to your, to your question 100%. But in my experience, I think people are still viewing things from a fairly traditional lens and have that ability to, to fall in and out of what would be stereotypical masculine, feminine roles, practices, behaviors, et cetera. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the beliefs that one has around one's gender, specifically like gender roles and masculinity and femininity, you know, it, has the potential to impact how we feel about ourselves based on what we can and can't achieve within those things. So that kind of leads me into the next question, which is what are some presenting concerns in therapy that you often see and work with that are unique to men and or masculine identifying people? And how much of this is because of the gender roles and expectations that exist for men and masculine identifying people? especially as it relates to roles like being a father, husband, son, et cetera, et cetera. So what used to, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that like 90% of my practice was Spanish speaking when I was at the agency. Now, or since I've been in private practice, 90% of my client load is men. And I would say of that 90%, you know, probably 80% of men who are coming into services or math, yeah, who are coming into services for the very first time. So the, the primary, not the primary presenting issue, right? Because that could be any number of things, but sure. it's, um, it's, a, it's a true lack of not only emotional intelligence, but even emotional awareness beyond good and bad, right? Happy and sad. And that's predominantly, you know, um, yeah, most of the men, just to, to not say all of the men are still seem to be operating with, uh, you're a man, suck it up and move on. That happened when you were nine, get over it, you know, and coming in or, or, life experience has gotten them to a place where that idea no longer serves um, beyond, you know, you're tired from work, but go mow the yard. Right. You know, you right. Well, and then that, that sort of thinking causes us to feel bad about feeling bad, you know, mm -hmm. which further compounds that issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of second to that question how might some of those concerns that we're seeing be impacted by culture and the expectations of men and masculinity within them? So, for example, in many Latinx cultures, there are the concepts of machismo for like men and marianismo for women that may impact the expectations people have in terms of masculine versus feminine gender roles. So 
So the people that you work with, you said about 90% men. Um, do, you, do you find that it's primarily Hispanic men that seek you out or, or is it men of all cultures? It's, it's men of all cultures. And, you know, while um, it's men of all cultures and as well as females of all cultures come in with both of those ideas, you know, um, there may not be the equivalent name, you know, like Marianismo in, in English, right. For, 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 for that culture. Um, but the women that I see from, again, you know, multiple cultures are coming in with those same ideas. And so, you know, um, socialization and culture is, is uh, playing a part in all of that. Right. And I think to a degree, sometimes people or my clients are a little bit um, surprised when I start to challenge those ideas um, because then they're they're because here comes grief and loss. If right. if I take into account what this guy is telling me. How is that going to change my place and role within my family, within my family at large, within my, you know, my friend structure, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm someone who believes that the individual is of utmost importance and takes a backseat to the group. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I'm also curious, you know, one thing you had talked about earlier that you had initially struggled with in going from being married to being married with kids was uh, adjusting expectations. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like that's a, a similar way in which you approach working with people who are, who feel the pressure of our socialized gender roles, right? Um, and so how do you go about helping people adjust those expectations and like learn about themselves in that way? I think, well, I mean, part of that is, is, is just, I say just, is the experience of being in session. And I think, you know, um, it's not my phrase, right? But words don't teach, only experience does. And without sounding arrogant or with not trying to sound arrogant or whatever else. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin um, in any number of situations that, you know, et cetera. And so I think when, when people are there and they're experiencing not just the, the, the shell of me, which is fairly stereotypical in, in many ways, right. That, that, that along with the ideas that I'm presenting can kind of help to help them to begin to reflect on their own expectations of, of themselves. So, so kind of like, here's a dude who's very doodly, who's telling me it's okay to be a man and do these things. Yeah. That makes yeah, a lot of sense. Telling me, telling me that it's okay to, to, you know, not just be happy or, sad or, you know, happy or angry. Um, and that has a, a range. And that was one of the things, I don't know when exactly what happened for me, but I saw it as a, 
a little bit as a, a an act of rebellion, right? To say, well, hold, hold on, like here's all of this other feeling experience that I don't have ready to access to, right? And I'm repeatedly told that women have more access to that, or females have more access to that because of socialization and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, you know. I'm not going to willingly cut off my left arm just because I'm right hand dominant, you know? Um, so let me go ahead and start exploring some of this other stuff for myself, right? Because I'm not going to have anybody tell me that this is what a man is, or this is what a man does. And these are not the things that, that real strong men or males do. Right. And so I, I'm also curious, like you, you've given us some information about your thoughts on gender roles as a whole, but you know, one thing that I've kind of noticed and is pretty prevalent, I mean, especially on like Sixth Street in Austin, um, is the general fragility of masculinity in general. What are your thoughts about that? When you say fragility of masculinity, can you tell me a little bit? More? Yeah. So like, so like men and masculine identifying people mm. taking things personally and then because the nature of their view of themselves within the context of masculinity is like shaky to begin with they compensate with like unhealthy behaviors mm. kind of along that vein of toxic masculinity yeah mm -hmm. yeah uh, well, and I would, I would say that's, it's something that can be observed. Um, I've observed it more in my office across gender in that I think those, any of those negative or any of those behaviors that we would deem as, as toxic or, or negative come out of that place of my identity being challenged. And my identity is being challenged because I have not been taught, have not explored for myself, et cetera, how to become more, more rooted in my own identity, uh, regardless of how you may perceive me, that when that presents itself, then, you know, I revert to my ancient biology and now I become defensive. Um, even if it's not out, like if it's not an outward defensive defensiveness towards you, I'm going to adopt this series or continuum of behaviors that firmly uh, puts me back in that place of, 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 um, of role identification status, and you can't question that any further. So it's kind of like a, a superficial sense of self. Oh, sure. By all means, yeah, thank you for, for distilling that into, into that. Yes, it is very much a superficial sense of self. And that's, you know, going back to Amanda's question earlier about who is my ideal client, that raw vulnerability that exists for all of us, right? It's, it's knowing how to tolerate that sense of vulnerability in the face of, of, of a particular challenge in a in a in a global sense right and we can't feel connected like in a like 
really genuinely connected way to other people without vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes the barrier to that vulnerability for a lot of people is shame, right? Shame and, and, and inexperience, you know, uh, the grief and loss class taught me that, well, we were, we were raised by parents who were emotionally unintelligent, right? Doesn't mean that they ruined us, right? But, but by parents who were emotionally unintelligent. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it starts, it has its foundations in that. There was a, a seminar that I went to long time ago at a conference and the woman's name is uh, Nancy Luna Jimenez and her, her, she might've actually been one of the keynote speakers and her speech, her talk was on, on what she called adultism and how adultism was something that again, across culture, gender, race, you know, socioeconomic status, et cetera, was something that I think she went as far as to say that we all, had experienced. And it was that experience of being made the other as children that allowed for uh, things like institutionalized racism to take hold because we'd all, we'd all had that, that shared experience and felt, um, felt what it was like to, to, to make someone the other. And so it was a little bit easier for us to make somebody else the, the other. That, then I, I tied that into this grief loss experience and this emotional, you know, um, lack of emotional intelligence, right? Because if, if the trusted adults and, you know, hopefully there's at least one trusted adult, right? In every child's life, but, you know, the trusted adult tells me that I'm okay, even though my body hurts and my knee is bleeding from where I fell down and skinned myself then I start to not trust myself because my trusted adult is telling me that my reaction to this experience is not correct. So the foundations of what you're talking about, in my opinion, have their root all the way back there. So like boys don't cry, boys don't get sad, you know, boys get angry. (laughs) Right. That sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. As well, you know, like you said, you know, and, and women must always, or females must always be happy and present a, you know, pretty smiling face and, 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 you know, their traditional socialization of tend and befriend, you know, and I should push these feelings aside for the greater good, you know, um, and take care of someone or something else. So, Yeah. So for me, much of that is rooted, you know, definitely there's experience and life, you know, life experience, et cetera, but they come back to this foundation of, of nations and cultures um, raising emotionally unintelligent children. There was something, I don't know if you, if you heard the, uh, the Jewel podcast with Joe Rogan. No, no, I didn't. It's, uh, it's long. Uh, but I listened to it in, in spurts and she kept going back to this idea that, that uh, she didn't say it this way. The way I took it was like that emotional intelligence was something that we had at some point 
in our past that we don't teach or have anymore. And to a degree, I think she was confusing that with, with resilience, but also mixed with this idea of, you know, or maybe not just the idea, but the, the reality that people, you know, before you and I and Amanda all share a much higher level, a much, a much more sophisticated level of survival that because we share this more sophisticated level of survival, we have the time to reflect on, well, what am I feeling in my body? You know, did that situation make me angry, sad, confused, all of the above? Whereas our predecessors had to, you know, cut, cut wood for fire and make every meal from scratch. And, and, and all of that was rooted, like there was a lot of meaning making that went along with that for sure, right? Um, now I'm kind of losing my, my train. I, I see what you're saying. Like we have more like literal space within ourselves to examine that rather than to just constantly be in survival mode and worry about tasks primarily related to that. And more time. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, you know, if, uh, yeah, if I was sad because my mom died, there was only so much time that I could focus on that before the cow needed to be milked again, or I needed to go work at my extremely hard manual labor job or, you know, whatever it was. Um, and I just didn't, you know, the, 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 the demands of life was just so much higher and, mm -hmm. and not so much now. So back to the fragility of, of, of all of that, I think again, you know, I don't want to repeat myself, but I think to me, for the way I conceptualize in the work that I do with my clients, it's rooted in that lack of emotional awareness slash intelligence and all of the places where that has, not to mention all of the different factors that can throw off my perception of a given experience, um, et cetera. Do you think the cultural expectation of masculinity is exclusive to men? Or do you think people who lean in the masculine direction are also subject to the idea of toxic masculinity? So, for example, as a more masculine lesbian, I'm kind of expected to take the role of man in a relationship. So I fix things, uh, kind of expected to defend my woman, as it were. Uh, and I also kind of have weird you know, feminine expectations such as people pleasing. So I'm kind of stuck in this weird intermediate world where my emotions are discounted on both sides, uh, but I am subject to masculine expectations. Uh, do you think this is something that's something that happens across the gender spectrum or is it something that's kind of more exclusive to men? I think it happens on across the gender spectrum if you're willing like if, if you if you're if you willingly step into society's idea of masculinity then here comes the responsibility uh that that goes with society's expectation that's true right go fix this defend your woman you know all the, <laughs> the different examples that, that you threw out there um and yeah, that's, that would be, I would say, yes, that, that people, that people who are, are, are stepping in to what society thinks of masculinity will have this stuff projected on them. 
That reminds me of something my dad taught me when I was young. He said, if you throw a hit like a man, expect to take a hit like a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, one societal gender role expectation that is definitely learned through our socialization is that in men and masculine leaning people, they tend not to express emotions or talk about feelings. Where do you think this came from and how did it become so prevalent? So as you discussed earlier, you know, there were kind of agrarian reasons that men took on certain roles, but I don't really see any evolutionary benefits in the masculine expectation that emotions are not important or that it's not okay to express them. Where do you think mm. that came from? Ah, I would agree that there is no evolutionary benefit um, to it. It probably more a product of people, you know, once, once we started coming together into groups and, and those roles being more, um, I wouldn't say necessarily thought about um, the the roles getting a little bit more clear. It's like you something happened and then you come up with the explanation for it. Mm. You know, um, would be my best guess. You know, not being an anthropologist, um, et cetera, would be you know as as societies began to form and you start to get specialized. Um, well, seemingly right as societies begin to form and evolve, you start getting specialized jobs, right? And that's, that, that's got to go beyond just the job it, itself, right? But what kind of work goes involved into that job? Um, and probably some of it was self-serving, you know, on the, on, on the part of, of men, right? Raising kids is hard. Oh, yeah. that's woman's work. You know, you, <laughs> you, uh, you, uh, you carried them, right? Like, so you're going to be, you know, better off because nature said so knowing how to, knowing how to do that. And there's a, there's a degree of that, that, well, I think persists today, right? When, uh, when someone might say something like, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mama bear, you know, as if, as if, uh, I guess the opposite of that, right? Being, you know, women, a, a woman's going to know how to take care of their children better than a man, right? Is, is something that, that's, that the clients that I work with also experience in terms of, of rearing their, raising their, their, their children. So I, th I think it, I think it, I think it's something that was self-serving at the time to either, either gender or the, the gender continuum, however, you know, however we want to think about that, mm -hmm. that has outlived its, its usefulness. Yeah, I agree. I think Noah and I were discussing that earlier. Um, and Noah's argument was that, you know, in roles of power, you know, maybe it kind of behooved people to show less emotion. But my counter argument was that in studying philosophy, the great orators in the time of Plato and Socrates were actually the more successful orators and the one that took better positions of powers were the ones that wept as they argued. So it's not actually been historical, historically accurate to say that people who didn't emote took higher positions of power. So it's actually a, it's something that's fluctuated throughout history. And I find it interesting that especially today, 
you know, it's it's become such a prevalent thing. Mm. And I wonder if that stems from like military, you know, have, we've kind of as a nation, we've been at war since we've been a nation. And I wonder if that kind of stems from that. Probably at, at, at different times, right? The, the circumstances of the day dictate that as well. Not, I'm not a, necessarily a, 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 um, a student of, of philosophy necessarily. However, I would also say that the, like the, the examples you gave were probably seen as the exception mm. rather than the, than the rule. True. You know? And then there's also still the individual and the collective um, acceptance of the, of that vulnerability. It's like, it's okay for him to do it. Right. And, and, and I get it, but you know, that's not, that's not for me because I look around and my neighbors, you know, not a, he's not a man like, like that. Right. And all these other people that I have, more frequent contact with, I don't know how many people, uh, Socrates or Plato had, you know, contact with on, on the regular. Um, so yeah. And they were men of leisure as opposed to warriors or men of right, work. Yeah. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. A whole different set of, of circumstances. And that might've even been like, Oh, what, you know, what's this man of leisure talking about? You know, um, <laughs> doesn't know his head from his ass. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and the thing I want to say about what you were saying, Amanda, about how uh, the how like people who wept while they were um, like giving a a passionate speech um, tended to have more power like that could have also been an intentional uh, tool of manipulation. Oh, very, very true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there, too, I mean. I guess without getting too far off in the, in the weeds, right. Comes that societal social control and how, how is a particular group or society, like how are they going to share power and what are the, you know, the delineations that come down from, from theirs as well. Yeah. So I guess the important takeaway from that is masculinity has, has something to do with tasks and power. And and control and control. Yeah. So on that vein, what do you think the costs and benefits are of having the gender role expectations of men and masculine people that our society has? I would say the cost is that it it continues to perpetuate individuals and therefore groups um, who aren't entirely having a genuine experience on the planet. Do you think there are any benefits associated with it? Um, well, I mean, we're, again, I'm not an anthropologist or a social psychologist or whatever else. I'm not going to 100% be able to point you to, to, but there's probably any number of untold benefits that we're experiencing now, right? Because of, because of all of those things. Right. And, um, but coming (laughs) coming from the place that again i i think that the individual is of utmost importance um i think i'll you know i stick with my answer that whatever the benefits are and whatever meaning making can be made from someone adhering to um those norms and those roles etc it comes as a cost 
comes as a cost to the individual, which ultimately has a cost to the group. And, and that feedback loop um, continues and it's endless. Um, and even if we can't, even if we can say, well, this was for the greater good, you know, at the cost of how many moments in a given or, you know, a given individual's life. Right. Um, and, and whatever, whatever positive meaning making was or could have been available to that particular person for having adhered to all of that, is that the meaning that they made, mm. you know, uh, out of it? So mental health issues and treatment has historically had significant stigma attached to this, uh, especially for men and masculine leaning people. Uh, many people interpret seeking mental health care uh, is, is seen as a sign of weakness or something to have shame or feel embarrassed about. Uh, there's been a lot of effort to work towards normalizing seeking mental health care, uh, even in just the last 20 years alone, but especially a push since the pandemic I've seen. Uh, have you noticed an increase in men or masculine-leaning people reaching out for therapy as society has tried to normalize mental health therapy and treatment? Probably, well, you know, since I've been in private practice, the majority of my caseload at any given time is is male or, or male-leaning dominated. Uh, and why that is, like why that, I, you know, that versus my experience previously at the agency, I wouldn't 100% know. Um, I think that it, it is becoming something that more men are willing to risk um, or male and, and male leaning. And I think that um, they're also a little bit more, which is, I think, ultimately, a, like from a consumer standpoint, a good thing. Uh, they're a little bit more willing to shop around. And if, if a particular, if, if working with a particular person isn't working for them, then they're a little bit more willing to go, eh, I'm out, you know, uh, and maybe I'll try again later, but, you know, I'm not going to stick with something that doesn't work for me. Okay. So like men and more ma and masculine people, being more consumers of mental health rather than just going because their wife told them to, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another good distillation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anything else you want to mention about working with men and masculinity, Hector, before we move on to the, the next part? I would say overall that, I won't say all, the majority of the men and masculinity people that I've worked with have been ideal clients. And I've been pleasantly surprised at their readiness and willing, uh, maybe those are the same thing, I'm not sure, uh, their ability to tolerate those vulnerabilities and engage in that real, what I, what I consider to be true and genuine uh, way uh, with me in, in services, right? I, I haven't worked with, with many men or male leaning people where it's like pulling teeth, um, 
you know, during the during a particular session or, or even throughout the course of sessions. I think the how did you say it earlier, Noah? I'm a I'm a doodly dude. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that in and of itself, um, I won't say it's 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 entirely responsible for it, but I think that helps to normalize the experience in and of itself of of coming in and being real and being vulnerable and, and, you know, leaving the bullshit at the door. Um, yeah. Well, you're, you're modeling that, that these things are okay. And I, I think that's important for people to like for masculine and men, masculine people and men to have that sort of model of what healthy masculinity looks like, because most people don't have a frame of reference for what healthy masculinity is or can be. Um, so jumping into more of like you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? In my, in my current practice, uh, not much in terms of those people are, are not, if they're seeking services, they're either not seeking services with me or I've not, you know, uh, had uh, space on my, on my calendar um, as they've sought services. Um, I'm sorry. Can you please restate your question? Sure. So just generally asking about your experience working with clients from vulnerable populations, ah. which I mean, you know, doing the work you did at, at LifeWorks, that, that is an especially vulnerable population. Yeah. Um, I kind of specific to particular groups, I wouldn't consider that I have a lot of experience um, with a particular group or that particular group's particular concerns. Um, because, well, I think because of the way I conceptualize myself, you know, because of the way I conceptualize things, then um, I'm coming from that place of, of people generally lacking emotional intelligence and awareness, et cetera. Um, and my, my, my buy-in to the belief that the individual is, is of utmost importance rather than a particular group or then the group, um, I see, I see that, um, vulnerability that perhaps isn't, it's not exactly what you're asking about, but I kind of see everyone as, as a vulnerable population, because this is, these are parts of our experience that need to be addressed and shorn up. And they're, they're not usually or they haven't been. Um, but with regards to, to the specifics that you were asking about, um, do I have specific experience or competency? No. I think my, my general overview of people kind of does give me a foundation where my services are adaptable to whomever ha happens to be sitting in, in the chair opposite to me. Gotcha. 
So, you know, I know all therapists do their first session with clients kind of different. And I asked this question because I feel like it helps decrease people's anxieties about having their first session with a new therapist. So what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And then what about more on an ongoing basis as well? I usually, when I have a, a first-time client, um, I will usually make time for them even before, even before when I was doing in-person services. Um, it's usually going to be a 20 or 30-minute conversation uh, on the phone. Uh, now, since we've got the telehealth, I guess telehealth or the video option was possibly always available um, to us, but I, I never used it. So if I can set up an initial consult over the video, then I do that. And I give a you know, pretty decent overview of these are the things that are going to be available to you. You've got your general talk therapy. There is also, you know, the EMDR aspect that's going to be available to you should we think that's, you know, um, necessary and you decide you want to engage in that particular form of work. Um, and, you know, like everybody else, probably getting a general background. I like to start off, you know, stealing from, um, from somewhere, uh, you know, how can I help you today? What's, what's going on today that we can begin to make some progress, right? Bringing right from the beginning that solution-oriented uh, framework and model into the, into the picture. And so I let people know in that initial session and ongoing, I am going to be asking, suggesting, needing you to be active in this process and when I say active, I mean truly active. You are going to be doing things each and every week um, to be making progress on your current and or, you know, longer term goal. And so that's something at the beginning of every session. Again, not reinventing the wheel. I no longer operate from the action plan in a formal way. I found that uh, in private practice, Seemingly, the people who were coming in, uh, the majority of them were going to take their copy of the action plan and throw it in the trash or throw it in the recycling. So it's a more informal process, but we start the session off with, okay, you know, all the pleasantries and good afternoon or good morning and how are you? And, you know, uh, and then, so tell me what got better this week. And we identify, you know, client identifies that, what helped that would help the communication with your partner to get better this week. Right. And sometimes I get the throwaway all, I don't know. It's like, well, let's, <laughs> let's dig into that a little bit because it, it wasn't an accident. Right. right. You did something or didn't do something that made things better. Right. So let's, let's identify what that was. And I, I, while it's still informal and way, well, it was still fairly conversational, even when I worked with the action plan formally, um, I'm going down the, I'm going down the sheet in the, the midst of the session. Um, and then at the end of the session, it's like, okay, so this week you're going to be using halt at least three times a day, every day. Um, cool. Ready, break, go see you next week. You know, and sometimes there's, you know, one action step. Sometimes there's multiple, you know, sometimes it might just be, uh, 
A or a series of questions to reflect on during, during the week, you know, insight's great, uh, but insight without action, it's like, eh, you know, what's the point? So I think you answered a good bit of this in your, uh, in your response just now, but how do you determine your client's long-term treatment plan goals and how will I know I'm done with therapy? Um, well, I would say that the client and I determine on, on what their long-term treatment plan goals are. Um, and that may be, it may not be long-term, you know, some of them are, are fairly short. You know, I had a guy who came in and he knew he wanted EMDR. He had been sober for like 10 or 15 years, um, very active in his sobriety and in that community of, of AA, et cetera. And he just wanted the, he just wanted the EMDR. So I saw him for like three or four months and we processed through all of the targets that we had identified and it was like, all right, cool. I'm done. Peace. I'm out. Um, I check in routinely when, when the, when the rhythm of a set of, a of, of services is getting a little bit um, what's the word I want to use in the phrase? A little too chit chatty, maybe, or just reporting on, and I went grocery shopping and then this happened and, you know, um, something along those lines. I'm, I'm not giving you a, a, a very clear explanation to that, but um, Noah might be able to distill it again for me like he did in the last two times. Um, I, I check in with people uh, pretty frequently to say, are your needs still being met? If so, what is it that we're doing that's helping that happen? If not, where do we need to adjust? Uh, is it possible, you know, or have you considered, to, you know, that, that services are nearing their, their end? If so, how would you know? Like, what, what is it that you would experience, Amanda, in your day-to-day or, you know, what is it that you would experience that would, that would give you the, the reassurance that, ah, I'm done. I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to have the conversation about being done. Yeah. So getting the client very much to, to reflect on, on those different questions uh, to generate that, that answer. And I've also had people who the day-to-day has gotten better and we could do EMDR and I, you know, I could interject that. And they're like, I think for now, you know, I'm good. And if I decide I want the EMDR later, then, you know, I'll look you back up. Okay. Okay, cool. You know, you know when you're ready and... And if you're ready, then you're ready. Cool. You know, I want sense. it to be a, re- I want it to be a resource that people uh, use when they need it. You know, and so taking as well that kind of consumer approach, right? I don't, I don't go, I don't go to the grocery store if I don't need to go to the grocery store. True. Mm. I think you're you're right about that, Hector. When it gets too chit chatty, and you're just basically talking about whatever the client did that last week, it, it, it doesn't have the feeling of being like productive, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that it, it is a constant ongoing conversation, um, you know, because no client is obligated to continue therapy. You know, it's therapy is there as for as long as the individual feels it's helpful to them. And I let people know, you know, it, at, in the beginning and kind of as needed that, hey, like what, as a, working as a clinician in this capacity, what I have to offer might not be your cup of tea. And if that's the case, I get it. You know, uh, let's have that conversation. I'll help you find a, a, another provider, a referral, et cetera. And, you know, we put that, put that on the table. Um, For sure. So the next question I have is how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Mm. You know, I got the best compliment. I got the best compliment that I would consider a compliment just the other day. And this woman that I'm working with said, I really appreciate that I don't have to smile when I'm in here or not in here, but you know, on the, on the video, I can yeah. just be myself. And so I, well, from that comment, I, I, from that compliment, I took it to say, um, people are experiencing me as someone with whom it is safe to be themselves. You know, as much as, as much as any of us allow ourselves to be ourselves in any one given moment. Right. But sure. you know, that, that, uh, in, in my 14 years of doing this work, that's the best compliment. That's the best statement that has been intended as a compliment that I have taken as a compliment in the time that I've been doing this work. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like it goes into the whole idea of holding space, which we'll get to here in a few minutes. Um, now, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And when I say cry, I don't mean like bawling uncontrollably. I mean, like maybe a few tears entering the picture. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yep. Happened more than it's happened more than once. Um, because, well, someone, because some, yeah, because people's experiences are, some of them are uh, downright heart wrenching and gut wrenching and, and tears and or laughter is the normal, acceptable um, reaction to hearing such a thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I, I, I've never bawled uncontrollably, but I've definitely teared up more, more than, more than once. Um, and laughter, you know, it's, uh, that's definitely, uh, I guess maybe that one's a little bit easier to access. I think I have a pretty good sense of humor. Um, so that gets interjected just as a part of, again, me, me being me, but I have, I have no problem with um, expressing those or having those manifestations of my internal feeling state occur when I'm working with somebody. Okay. 
Has there ever been a time when you've worked with a client for some time, but then realized you're perhaps not the best fit or are no longer able to help the client? And if so, what made you aware of this and how did you handle it? Hmm. I don't think I've ever entirely had um, somebody that I, well, it's not that I, I can help everyone, uh, but I think there is a way in which the people that I'm going, like there's a self-selection process through us getting to building that rapport, et cetera. And, and because I'm having that conversation from the, from the get go in a very matter of fact way, uh, the people that I've continued to serve, it's because we, you know, We've built a rapport. We've built that therapeutic relationship, and, works and out. there is being there, there. It just works out. And the people who don't think that I'm going to be able to help them say, "Hey, I'm I'm done," and I'm you know I'm done. Uh, they not maybe maybe not in that in that way that I just uh, put it out there, but uh, I'm taking a break, or I'm you know um, I'm looking for something else. And so I'm going to find another provider or something that, you know, people have said to me and it's like, all right, cool. You know, psychology today, your EAP are all good resources. Let me know if there's anything else I can do for you. If, uh, you know, whether now or in the future. Um, so I think it's more of a organic self-selection process that, that is undergone as we're getting to know each other. Yeah. I asked that question because I, I had a therapist get frustrated with me after m months of treatment and decide that they no longer wanted to work with me. <laughs> so I, uh, I was curious if that's happened with other therapists before. Was that just like that abrupt? It, yes, it was very abrupt. <laughs> oh, wow. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard, you know, not necessarily horror stories, but less than fortunate things from my clients about their work with other people um, that kind of leaves me a little bit, you know, mouth agape. Um, so it's definitely <laughs> shitty that you had that experience, especially, you know, because it was abrupt and not an ongoing conversation. Um, the one that gets me the most is when, when people that either become clients or are in the process of becoming a client and they're like, oh my God, thank you for calling me back. I've called, yeah. I called, you know, everybody on the list and, and have been waiting and you're the only one who's called me back. Thank you. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, um, that sucks. Yeah. You know? So, um, we talked about like the compliment that, that you got earlier and kind of how that ties into holding space. How would you define holding space for someone? I think it starts off with that probably with, with the question that I ask people at the beginning of every session. So how can I help you today? So that they have a moment to reflect on, well, on what it is that they want to address that particular day. So, you know, it's not my agenda or even necessarily what we worked on last week. We are going to check in on that at some point. Um, but it starts off with, with that particular question and an invitation, an invitation. Thank you. 
again with the distillery. Um, <laughs> you know, Sorry. It's, uh, uh, no, no, it, I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it starts off with that, with that question that I stole from somewhere. Um, I don't even remember where I stole it from. Might have even been like Dr. Phil or Caesar Milan, or I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but it's, if it's, it works, it's that, it works. If it works, it works, right? It's that initial invitation. And I think sometimes people want me to be a little bit like I could definitely, and I, and I know that I am in my services directive. Um, and, we, you know, at some point the session is, you know, will can take a turn in that way, but it, it will start with that, that question of how can I help you today um, to begin holding space for present experience, right? What's going on right now that, uh, mm -hmm. that you would like to address? Okay, cool. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Mm. Or I guess anyone for that matter. Sure. I think it's, it's to, it was, to, you know, to not be afraid to admit what I don't know, you know, and at the time it came up, um, somebody was asking me about, you know, whether or not I had kids, et cetera. Um, you know, earlier you asked me what my experience or competency was with, with vulnerable, uh, populations and, I don't know that I gave the, the, the same answer, but, you know, I, I am, you know, hand in the air. I don't know about that. You know, what share with me what you want me to know or what would be important for me to know about that. Um, I, I, you know, yeah, my experience is limited. I tell my clients, you know, jokingly or whatever, it's like, I don't get out much, right? I, uh, I maintain no presence on social media. I don't know what's popular necessarily today like inform me about your quality world so so i have an idea okay so you know earlier in this podcast we talked about you eventually making the decision to pursue a master's in counseling after learning about existential psychotherapy so kind of like from that point and through your work what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice that's a big one. Um, I think one of the things, and I said it earlier, that I've learned about myself and continue to reconcile is that I'm way more introverted than I ever gave myself credit for. Um, and in that in that vein, uh, what I've learned is that we while we are unbelievably resilient as a species, we're way more vulnerable um, than we give our, or fragile than we give ourselves credit for. And, and that's something that, that, uh, that also needs to be reconciled. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And earlier you had mentioned that exercise is an important aspect of your self-care. What else do you do to take care of yourself? And is there something at the end of a particularly difficult day that you just have to be sure to do for yourself? One of my, one of my go-tos, um, 
I I lean in the in the direction of anger and frustration, um, and well, I don't participate in any of the sanctioned ways in which that can express itself. So exercise um, takes that, that takes that role, whether it's you know just walking or lifting weights or hitting the punching bag. Um, you know, it's it's an avenue to to manifest and adequately or appropriately express those parts. Um, there's something that I stumbled into back in 2015, which I also offer as a part of my practice, and it's called TRE, and it stands for stands for tension and trauma releasing exercises. And um, that is another go-to um, that I use for my self-care. Uh, active like daily um and cool. you know i even before the pandemic um I, i'll have a series of phone calls with people you know throughout the week not, not not the same cast of characters every week but you know checking in with my with my friends um one of them in a in a good way uh described me as the aggressive friend so the friend who's always going to be making contact and seeing what's up and, and uh, keeping those lines of communication open. Um, in terms of self-care, I also, you know, and this is something that, that I suggest to my clients is making, designating a time every week that's, you know, not necessarily our time in session, but to sit and reflect and sit with um, whatever's there. So I'll usually, you know, like most people I would imagine, um, I have Spotify playlists for all kinds of stuff. And I kind of start in one place, uh, whether it's, you know, sad bastard music or something a little more aggro, get in touch with that. And um, usually while I'm cleaning the house, you know, I'm going to, get in touch, uh, so to speak with the feelings of the week or that particular moment. And I'm going to cry and grit my teeth and, um, sing out loud and do all of those things and, and, um, uh, do all of them and do none of them sometimes, I guess. Um, <laughs> As it goes. That, uh, yeah, I try to, I try to stay pretty, um, consistent with that, you know, on a weekly basis. And I also, it's a, it's a good, for me, it's been a good exercise in continuing to increase my uh, tolerance in that, you know, it usually happens when my wife takes the kids to go pick up donuts curbside. And so I know I have about an hour, right? I have a, about an hour, right? So it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And I know about when, when I need to start coming up for air and wash my face and, and get ready to, to switch uh, or go into the role of, of being dad on a Sunday, you know. It's a lot, but I think having like intentionally setting aside that time, like there's something definitely to be said for that. Um, how would you define happiness? I would, I'm going to steal from somebody else and say that uh, 
happiness while it's meant to be appreciated is seeking happiness as a goal is a bit of a fool's errand because it only lasts until the next crisis shows up. So I conceptualize it for myself and share it with my clients as, you know, more of that meaning making, right? Is your life fulfilling? Is it satisfying? In in spite of or in conjunction with all of the different challenges that you face, are you living the life that you want to be living? Yeah, I think it's about creating a life you don't feel like you have to regularly escape from. Mm -hmm. And that can be, you know, uh, depending on the circumstances of any given time, or as people like to say, this season, that season, um, that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Sure. Something else that hit me not that long ago was, you know, we hear a lot and we are told a lot about living a life without regret. But I'm not sure that that's entirely, not only not possible, but not probable. And I use silly little examples, you know, um, to highlight some of this stuff for myself as I'm thinking about it. And then with the clients, it's like, you know, we've all had that experience of sitting next to somebody at a restaurant and seeing what's on their plate and going, damn, I should have ordered the steak. Like this fish and, and vegetables that I ended up going with, just it's not, you know, it's not going to hit the mark. Um, so if we can, if we can manage our effort to, to live a life without resentment, I think we've really done something. Um, and we want to be a little bit easier with ourselves about the things that we regret because well, right. Cliche hindsight's 2020 and it's always going to be right. And every one of us is going to have something that if we really had the opportunity to do it differently, we might or probably would. Yeah. And within that, I think it's important to have, have self-compassion for not knowing what we don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So Next, cu- next couple questions are a little vulnerable. First one is, what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? Hmm. I don't think I've ever farted in session. So, <laughs> so that's good. Um, and and I are 12 and immediately laugh that, <laughs> that the fact fart was said. <laughs> uh, um. Ah, I don't know, you know, because I, I, like I I answered earlier, I have teared up um, in sessions, you know, before, and I don't necessarily consider that to be, sorry, did you say vulnerable or embarrassing? Uh, Embarrassing moment. Ah, yeah. Um, Hmm. There, it didn't, it didn't happen while I was in session with one of my clients, but I was in a, I was in a different office and I had just gotten started in private practice. Um, and somebody at United Healthcare in all of their wisdom changed my profile to duplicate 
Del Toro. And so for like the first six months, none of my claims were going through. And they were all getting kicked back, even though I was truly credentialed with them. And so private practice was, was going. I had a break. I'm sure, Noah, you remember at some point, right? You call the insurance company, and that's an hour, hour and a half at phone least. call at least, right? And so the acupuncturist next door was in a session with someone, and I lost my cool. Right. And he had to come over or he came over and checked on me to say, hey, like you're disrupting my my acupuncture session. You, you need to calm down, chill out. Like and that was definitely embarrassing. Um, so, yeah, insurance companies, I, insurance companies will do that to any <laughs> dealing with them is like it's awful. Um, yeah. That's part of why I don't take insurance anymore is because of the constant level of frustration that I was feeling that was, you know, seeping into my life. I didn't, mm. I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, I totally feel that I have, I may or may not have raised my voice uh, over the phone with insurance companies <laughs> in the past. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. The, the next vulnerable question I have for you is, are you in therapy currently or have you ever been in therapy? I'm not in therapy currently. Um, I have in the past. Um, before I was in the counseling program, I was in therapy. Um, once I got into the counseling program, at Texas State, we started seeing, we start working with clients pretty much from the word go. And whether that's through the, the counseling clinic for the program or even working with, with other people in the program. And um, yeah, one of, one of those, and during one of those classes, um, I don't remember if something in particular got, got highlighted or whatever else, but the, the uh, professor had a conversation, not in the, hey, if you want to stay here, you need to go get some help. But, uh, hey, I think I know someone that it would be really, you know, it could be of, of service and benefit to you professionally and personally to, to go speak with. And so um, I went and worked with a guy named George Lynch or sorry, Jorge Lynch um, at uh, Waterloo Counseling um, way back when um, my wife and I have done couples counseling at various times to to address different things in our, in our relationship. Um, so yeah, it's not an experience that I'm currently participating in, but I have in the past. All right, cool. Well, Hector, I really appreciate you being on the show today and being vulnerable in your life and your experiences. Is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Right on. Um, To know about me in particular, I would say no. For potential clients, you know, um, give it a shot. With me or with somebody else, your, your life experience is a huge investment. And um, if there's something that, that, that the profession at large can do to help you live, to have a better experience, then by all means, you know, give yourself that, 
that opportunity. Um, when I when I'm working with younger people, I have a very good memory, and so it's very easy for me to remember what it was like to be 15 or 18 or whatever. And what I tell them is, I could not have told you what 23 or 27 or 33 or any of these numbers, what right, any of the what was what that was going to look like for me. But looking back, what I can tell you is that the time passed, right? And um, you have a chance as a younger person to have a higher quality of life than I did because you're connecting to this at a much early age, right? You're getting some more tools in your toolbox and all of that good stuff. Um, so try it, try it sooner than later. And if you don't find the right person at first, then by all means, you know, um, shop around, become a consumer of mental health services. For other professionals, I would say if you have somebody uh, and you don't usually call them back, call them back because, <laughs> because you're doing our profession a disservice. People are looking for you in a time of need, and I get it. We're busy. You're seeing clients, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it doesn't take that long to call back and tell somebody, hey, I don't have any availability. For sure. Thanks so much, Hector. I appreciate right on. it. Thanks for having me. Y'all have a good Thanks, weekend. Hector. Thanks, Thank you, Amanda. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. We learned something new today and hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring David Zuniga, licensed psychologist who will be talking about his practice in an area of specialty, spiritually integrative counseling. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmit.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www dot patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash next quest podcast or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash about next quest podcast you can also support the podcast by liking our facebook page until next question this is noah garcia signing off <laughs>